told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder as, uh, of the soul from the spirit like bones or joints from the marrow, and it's a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed that is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished, might, might be approved thoroughly furnished for all good works. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, Paul tells Timothy, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling, cutting straight the word of truth. And uh, we're going to open the word of truth tonight to Genesis chapter 23. And as I open, I want to pay tribute. Today is March 15th of 2023, the Ides of March, I'll never forget. 30 years ago today, I met my pastor for the first time, a man that had raised me in the faith since I was a little kid, listening to him on his video or his audio recordings. See, we had a pastor in Longview, Texas, in Grace Bible Church, who died of leukemia in 1981. His name was Paul Stark. And I'm sorry to say, for those of you that this will shock, I was five years old. But, uh, but I remember meeting him, seeing him at church, uh, shook his hand once. His daughter was born just a few, just a few days after me, and so we grew up together. But um, we lost our pastor at a little bitty church and wasn't growing and it was having trouble supporting uh, the pastor. So we went to um, a model that is actually pretty popular today. The big church would send out um, a signal to um, the little satellite churches through the phone lines back then. And your phone line would be hooked up to the PA system and then you would, you would have um, uh, live sermon, but it'd just be audio from the, the big guy down in you know, wherever. And I grew up three hours away from Baraka Church in Houston uh, where I grew up in Longview, Texas. And uh, so I heard my pastor's voice for years before I ever saw him. In 1989 or so, well, somewhere in there, they started a new technology. Uh, light years advances forward in technology from um, having started with reel-to-reel cassettes to, um, they called it the FX telephone hookup where, you know, the biggest bill in the church was the phone bill. And then in summertime, the, the air conditioning, I'm sure. But, um, but we went to VHS, video recordings, and they ruined us because they put us on a two-week delay. So we stopped having live, and we started having a two-week delay, but then I saw him. And you have to understand um, that this man, uh, in the circles I was running, it was a legend, and, um, and he had been a pastor for, there for you know, 30 or 40 years at that point. And um, I was a conscientious student of the Bible because I followed my parents and they gave me their example. And so I had this man in very high esteem. His name was R.B. Theme Jr. And um, he pastored Bracket Church at Houston for more than 50 years. I think it was 53 by the time he finally retired with Alzheimer's. Um, I believe he died in 2010 or 2011. And uh, I, I was very new here and did not feel comfortable jumping on an airplane to go to a Sunday funeral because I had ministry work that he had taught me to do here. So I didn't get to go. But um, I just want to pay tribute to the fact that this man taught me to love God. He taught me to love God's word, to see it as the center of everything we do. 
to value the way God delivered it and it's Greek and Hebrew, Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament to say that if God did it that way, then we should do our very best to get to how he said it. Um, the priority for the Christian spiritual life, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the rejection of mysticism as, an, as a justification, rationale, a rationalization to, uh, to just do whatever we want and the insistence on the discipline to say what God said is where we need to hang our hat. The, the concepts of humility, the idea that this world is not our home, these are the things I was taught by my pastor, and I'm so grateful. One of the most important things, I'm standing there at 16 years old in my uh, Hallsville Bobcat Band letter jacket. That's right, you could letter in band. Um, this man was a letter, letterer in football, and so he's like, what is this letter? I said, trumpet. <laughs> 16 years old, said, I think I'm going to be a pastor. I think that's what I'm supposed to do. And he had great advice for me, and um, I just I remember we mentioned that it was March 15th because the year before I'd read Julius Caesar in school, and he died on March 15th, and so the Ides of March is a noted day in history. So it's always a noted day for me, and it's, it's hard for me to accept that that was 30 years ago. The blessings that I've received because of this association, I can't tell you. Um, the friendships that have developed because of this mutual affection we have for God's Word and desire to know Him on His terms. And one of the most important things I learned from my pastor, and that not everybody always got this, but I, I, I learned it from watching him and those that studied under him. He taught me to be myself. He taught me to just do your work and trust in the Lord and the process and the word is enough. He taught me the sufficiency of scripture, in other words. And I've never once thought I needed to copy anyone or, or do what someone else was doing except our Savior. And um, the concept of occupation with the person of Christ, that's Bob theme language. And I think it's some of the most important language I've ever learned. So I'm grateful for all the blessings, I'm grateful for the friendships, and I'm grateful for more than anything, <clears throat> sorry, the relationship I have with my Savior because of my pastor's teaching. Um, and he would be uh, really embarrassed if he saw me crying up here on this pulpit. <laughs> so... Um, one thing I never heard him do was work systematically through the biblical doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament, but the work I did see him do set me up to do this. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship with God, according to his promise and provision in 1 John 1 and verse 9, where he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I'll open us in prayer. Father, we praise you for the riches of your grace, which we enjoy right now. And the more we pay attention to your word, we recognize what you've told us about our so great salvation, and we don't want to neglect it. As we turn our attention to your word, Father, open our hearts to know you. Let your spirit so work in us with the word that we live out what you've said, not just by hearing it, not just by taking notes in our notebooks or 
listening carefully, but by coming to embrace these things and do them. Father, you've called us marvelously to the work that you're doing. You've enjoined us as your children to grow up and do it with you and the power you give us. So glorify yourself as we take that next step to grow up some tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 24, 27, we call it a little apocalypse, as you know, and we're, we're focused on this really interesting verse in Revelation, or Isaiah 26, 19. Their corpse, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the, the departed spirits. And I haven't done this with you as often as I might like to, but when we get to a theologically significant verse that is, um, it's all theologically significant, but I mean, when you get to a verse that is really effective in forming um, your, your theology, because it's clear, because it's, a, it's kind of a hang your hat kind of verse, like John 3.16 or Isaiah 53, the whole thing, or in this case, Isaiah 26, 19, I think it's important to go see how does this work? What's the theological context of the rest of the Bible on this topic? And we've been looking at how, especially in the New Testament, the way they quote the Old Testament, you have to think, you have to believe that there is an expectation of two things because the Old Testament is messianic, looking for the coming Messiah. The first thing is the expectation that Messiah would be raised so much of New Testament preaching is from the Old Testament. They're quoting Old Testament scripture, as we've seen, to say Messiah must be raised. And so Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the resurrection of Messiah, like in Psalm 16. But hand in hand with that, and what we're really looking at some tonight, is the concept that not only will the Messiah be raised, but those who can say that God is their God, they must be raised. Jesus taught us to reason this way, as we've seen in Matthew 22 and Luke 20, where he said in Exodus 3, Yahweh says to to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That thought is established forever in Exodus 3, hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. That thought is established, and Jesus adds to that, a very simple proposition. The living God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And these two thoughts together give you your rationale that anybody who God says, those are my people, those people are going to be resurrected. He's the God of the living. Because eternally, he's the God of the living. And that's the idea. And even when you think about people who've died physically, what about, what about after that? They're immaterial, they're spirit. What about that? Well, Abraham's bosom uh, for the Old Testament saints. And now the paradise is in the abode of God. And that captivity has been taken captive. And the Lord Jesus has taken all the Old Testament saints' spirits, if you will, to heaven. When we die, we are absent from the body and present with the Lord in conscious awareness of our Savior. And, um, and, And that is not the resurrection but we are, in that sense, alive. Our body's dead, but our spirit is with God. And we are waiting for the resurrection of this body. The metaphysics and the anthropology involved here are inescapable. You have a body, but that's not what you are. You aren't your body. Your body's part of you, but it's not you. And there's the soul-spirit complex. With your body, there's this mysterious 
combination of the, the, the physical and the non-physical, the material and the immaterial, to make you what you are. And in the sense of your spirit, we hold from what the Apostle Paul clearly says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, that you never die. You never die in, in terms of the ceasing to exist of your human spirit. It doesn't die, your body dies. But your spirit it will be with, the, with your Savior and then reunited with your body in the resurrection after it's made new, and you'll inherit eternity in that resurrection body. So this is the central doctrine of, uh, and part of our union with Jesus Christ because he's been raised, and that promises our resurrection, and that is our hope. The blessed hope of Titus is the resurrection of the church, described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, where we're told that the dead in Christ rise first, and then when he, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds, uh, to come together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. That is the event where you and I will be resurrected. And, and you, you can't really say that the people that are living, believers that are living, when that happens, that first thus four Harpazo event, that rapture event, you can't say that when that happens, um, the people that are living and are translated, you, can't, you, you, you almost can't say resurrection because they aren't raised from the dead. They are translated and receive the resurrection body. The, their body is transformed. And, I mean, I, we would put it all under that event of the resurrection, but you see there's, that's a very strange moment in history, and a lot of people make a lot of, uh, a lot of hay about it. I've heard people say that the doctrine of the rapture, for example, is, um, is a cop-out because you're trying to get out of suffering. And we've been called to suffer for Jesus. And that's a good objection if that's what we meant by the rapture, that it was a, a time to get out of suffering. But we don't mean that at all. In fact, we believe we're in a tribulation phase for the church now. We're not in the great tribulation, but we've been under persecution and attack, not in our bubble in the United States for most of our history, but... Um, but that's the, that's the exception to the general idea through church history of suffering. Actually, the way you apply the doctrine of our coming exit res- resurrection, exonostasis, that we're going to be translated into a resurrection body with the Lord, and it happen- it, it's, it's at any moment that this could happen. Paul said we, he could have been, it could have been him and his generation, and that's really powerful. The application of that is make sure you make your bed. Keep your house in order. Do the dishes as it were. You see what I mean? Like live and occupy as though this is your last chance to serve him because it may well be. And everybody's going to go get on the road after this. And that's a very common way for people to uh, check out of this life early as we think of it. We die in car accidents. We die in various ways. We don't know if we have tomorrow. We make the most of today because it could be any moment that we don't have any more opportunities to serve him. The imminency of the rapture is the most important part in terms of our application. Because, not because I, I get to cop out of this trouble that I'm having, or I'm going to max out my credit cards and be irresponsible, or some other thing that Paul deals with in Second Thessalonians. The application of the rapture is, right after that is the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to render his evaluation for what we did with our time. And it makes us remember something that we don't think about. That time is short. 
that today is all we have, that we know we have. So do what you should be doing in your walk with the Lord today and make it count. This is the most important application of the biblical doctrine of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, in my view. And it's also, in that context, a cause for us to comfort one another. Ah, I'm having trouble with my equipment tonight, just a little bit. Not a lot of bit, just a little bit. We're talking about where the resurrection is prophesied in the Old Testament, and we said one of the key ways we see it is that God implies it with things like to you. For example, this is a slide that'll work for us. In Genesis 17, 7, and I will give to you, this is God speaking to Abraham, and to your seed after you, the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an eternal possession, and I will be their God. And when he does this, it's this word to you. I will do it for you. I will be for you, your God. I will give to you the land. He keeps saying that to Abraham. He did it in Genesis 17 and, and, and earlier, Genesis 15. I will give the land to you, Lakah. That is not something that we just slap together with. That means he's going to give it to his kids. He says, and to your uh, to your kids later. But he says, I'm going to give to you, Lakah, to you, this land to inherit it. How will I know that I'll inherit it in verse 8? He, Abraham, would inherit it. Do you understand the problem with this? That the God promised Abraham a forever land, and he said he'd have a, a bunch of kids, and they'd be a worldwide blessing through, through the Messiah, the promise of Messiah. But he promises in the land and says, you are going to have the land, this land, and you walk around all in it, and you get the land. And Abraham never got the land. And that's why I asked you to turn to Genesis 23. So that's a little bit of an introduction to our story. We're gonna, it's time for Bible story time. In uh, Genesis chapter 23, where the whole purpose of this chapter, as we said, is to illustrate that Abraham never got in his lifetime what God promised him. And he died trusting him and his promises, despite the fact that in his lifetime he never received the land. Now, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. She died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. This is the end of, of, toward the end of his watch, too. And I'm still not a possessor. I still haven't inherited this land that the sons of Heth own. I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So I need to plant my wife in a grave because she has died. And I do not own property in this land of promise that God has all my adult life told me he was going to give to me and to my kids after me. I need some land to bury my wife. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. 
You are a mighty prince among us. Bear your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. It's no problem for us. Now, this is a really neat chapter because it gives you a little bit of flavor of the ancient Near Eastern cultures. It lets you see um, how there's always like a subtext that is going on, and it's, it, you, you don't want to interpret something that's not there, but it's very much here in this back and forth. And they are now negotiating, and it doesn't look like they're negotiating. It kind of shows you the subtlety of human interactions and communications. What the sons of Heth are saying is, you don't have to give us any money for land to bury your wife. We'll give it to you. That's what they're saying. But Abraham is not hearing that, as we'll see. And I don't think from reading what happens next, it's what they mean. So Abraham rose, Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephraim, the son of Zohar for me. So they've given a tacit approval to bury Sarah in their, in their burial site. They've given approval and offered him to do it gratis. And so now Abraham knows that he has approval to purchase the land to, buy, to bury his wife. And so he now go to the people that are really in charge, Zohar, Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now, give it to me for a full price means I'm buying it. And that's how they said it. This is a, a direct, like a literal translation of Hebrew. Give it to me for the purchase price. No, we'll give it to you for free is what they, you're going to come back with. And he's going to say, no, but I'm going to pay the full price. And, and uh, it's almost like it's portraying as he'll twist their arm in this way it's stated. And the entirety of Genesis 23 is this back and forth kind of haggle about let me buy this land. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Now we have witnesses to the business transaction that's going on. Even of all who went in at the gate of his city. Now that's important. The city gate is the seat of government in the city states. And that's where the sheriff is or the king who uh, has life and death. And so uh, the elders of the town are like the town council. And so the city gate is where all business transactions are going to take place. We'll see that a lot in the book of Ruth uh, going forward. But so, so there's wit there are witnesses to the transaction of what's happening as he offers money for his burial site for his wife. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. You have witnesses. I will give it to you. Now, Abraham is going to say, no, I'm not going to take it as a gift from you. I'm going to pay for it from you. And it makes us kind of ask the Bible, why? Why does Abraham say he will not take it as a gift? The text doesn't tell us, but there are two or three possible reasons. One is because a deeded piece of land may have been a more secure transaction that you had paid for that was on the town records than, um, than just saying, yeah, go ahead. Because Abraham isn't going to live there. 
because he's not going to know what's going on with that grave. Because um, if they own it, but they've given him that, given him, you know, you can do it, then he doesn't necessarily control it. Maybe there's that, that's the problem. But I think there's something more important theologically. I think it's like in chapter 14 when he doesn't take any of the spoil because he don't want to be enriched by the Gentiles. I think he's saying, God is the one who has made me rich. God is the one who has promised me this land. I will not be given this land by these Canaanites. He'll take God's money that God gave him, and he'll use God's money to buy the land, and in that sense, God will have given it to him. And I think that's what's happening. But it's interesting how this little haggling process goes on. The one other thing is, perhaps by giving him the land, he becomes beholden for the, for the favor. So now he's in debt. For the, yeah, I don't want to be in debt to you. I don't, have any con, I don't have any contractual relations with you, except I've bought something from you at a fair price. So anyway, these are the, the considerations in chapter 23. In verse, verse 12, And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. I'm not here for a gift. I'm here to give somebody some money. And I don't want a coupon. I don't want a discount. I don't want a, a you know, a, a, a TJ, 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 TGIF sale that, it, you know, Friday only, it's, it's, a, it's 25% off. I want to pay the full price and fully own what I'm buying. And the reason he has to do that is because he doesn't have any of the land that's been promised to him. What God said he would own from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates, a massive piece of real estate that Israel has never occupied to this day. I'm not going to take it from the Gentiles, and I haven't been given it by God, but I've got to bury my wife in the land of promise. Then Ephraim answered Abram, Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. You're rich. I'm rich. We don't need to haggle over 400 shekels of silver. He tells him the price. That's the price. And that's the first time we've heard of a price. Do you see how it's subtle? There's always the subtext. Ah, uh, what is it that, you know, that it costs, uh, that it costs me $4,235.65? I mean, who cares, right? We're going we're gonna to make sure you hear what it costs and what, the, what you would be indebted to me if I gave it to you. And so now we have the price. It's interesting when you try to buy some things, it, uh, they won't list the some, some, some businesses, some practices, or they won't tell you what the price is. Because they know that if you know uh, it's an expensive item, that you know the price, that you're, you're smart and you can do a budget. You say, well, I just don't have that. I don't have a plan for that. But let me sell you on its features before I tell you what its price is. But anyway, Abraham gets to the price. Um, and, they, and it's a funny way he does it. Ah, you don't have to know. You don't have to pay 400 shekels of silver uh, to me in cash. <laughs> Abraham listened to Ephron. See, it's all that, that verb that keeps coming back. Listen to me. No, you listen to me. No, I, I'm listening to you. Okay, 400, got it. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. Are we clear that Abraham is paying full price, whatever the asking price was? He didn't say, okay, I hear you're saying 400, but I mean, what's your best number? He said, whatever your number is, I'm going to give it to you without any question. So that there is no question that Abraham finally owns a piece of the promised land. So Ephraim's field, which is Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, 
All the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that's in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. And when you read through that, you think... That's a lot. I've just been reading through Genesis. I get to Genesis 23. Okay, uh, there's something going on with the buying of the cave. They went back and forth a little bit and finally got a number. I think this is the capstone event. It's like the denouement or whatever, how you say that, denouement on the end of the the adventure saga of Abraham. The climactic moment is the chapter before in Genesis 22 when he offers his son and and just assumes resurrection. Uh, At this point, I, what, it doesn't say how old he was. Maybe he's 120 at this point. Isaac is a young man. God could just raise him from the dead. And he said, he said he'd be the one that would have, you know, through whom the seed promise of the innumerable children would come. So he has to live. So he says, go sacrifice him. I'll just, okay, we'll go do it. Yes, Lord, I'll believe anything. Anything you say, I'll do. I'll step out on faith and trust you. Because of what you said. And so two things are happening in Abraham's mind when he offers Isaac. He says, God said Isaac would be the seed through whom the seed would come, like the the next generation and the next generation would come out of Isaac, not Ishmael. So I've learned at this point in my life to just trust the Lord. He said he would do it. And now he makes a command, go sacrifice him. Well, these seem to be contradictory purposes. And Abraham doesn't at this point in his development say... Lord, I understand what you're saying about sacrifice him. And while I would like to do that, could I remind you of this one point that you made about how Isaac's going to be the, the, the heir that the seed comes through him? He doesn't have kids yet. So maybe we could sacrifice him maybe in a couple, three years or something. Or maybe we could just, I know you want me to do this, but don't you know that I've got to get my heir out of Isaac like you said? See, that's not how you work with God. God's sovereign and God knows and he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And so he says, trust me and do what I ask. And that's Genesis. Trust me. And because I'm trustworthy, you do what I ask. And so that's what Abraham has finally learned. So you get to Genesis 22 and he does it. That's the climax of Abraham's life. And as you know, there isn't a resurrection event. There's a type Hebrews 11 says there's a type of resurrection. He receives Isaac back as a type. And God stops him. The angel of the Lord stops Abraham from sacrificing his son. And then there's the scapegoat that's provided. And that, the Lord indeed has provided himself a sacrifice. So when we, when we get to chapter 23, after that climactic moment, we say, what is this in here for? Is this the appendix about Abraham's life? And, you know, we're kind of winding down. No, it's the, it's the verification of everything we've read. I've been reading since chapter 15. When does he get the land? He's traveling in the land. He's sojourning in the land. When does he get the land? He never gets the land. And even this part, is this what you meant, Lord? 400 shekels of silver worth of land? No. And that is the doctrine of resurrection. Abraham died in faith, expecting to be resurrected. The Old Testament isn't only messianic. The messianic hope has always promised resurrection of the Messiah and of those who belong to God. Let's turn back in our Bible to uh, Genesis 22 and look at a couple things.
when God calls your name in the Old Testament, usually what you say is, in the New American Standard, you say, here I am. Um, and that's what happens in 22 uh, verse 1. It came about after these things of, um, of the, the deal with Abimelech, the second giving of Sarah away uh, to be... Um, no, that's the, it's, it's with Abimelech, but it's earlier um, in, in chapter 20. But anyway, so, so it kind of, the Abimelech covenant at the end of chapter 20, 21 kind of closes that cycle dealing with the Philistines. And it is the event of Abraham's boneheadedness of giving his wife, uh, through whom the seed will come, giving his wife to another man to be in, the, in his harem in order to save his life. And we say, if there was ever a trophy of God's grace that proved that God isn't calling people because of their goodness, that God's election as we see calling Abraham and saying, go to the land I'll show you, and starting with Abraham, this doctrine of God's choice is not about the merit in the person he's calling. And that's so evident in Genesis, one of the great themes of Genesis. We thought Abraham was a bonehead. Well, Isaac does the same thing his dad did later with his, with his wife, Rebecca. And then Jacob is a far worse person than both of them. And we say, um, are we being taught how to be chiselers or Jacob's? No, we're being taught that God's calling is a matter of his grace, and it's something for us to always be grateful for. And so in Genesis 22, after dealing with Abimelech, that God tested Abraham, summary of the event. See, sometimes in the Old Testament, we tell a story. You start with the summary headline, and then you fill in the details of the story. You say, God tested Abraham. That's 22.1. And now we're going to get into it. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. First time of the word love is used in the Bible right there. Genesis 22 and verse 2. Your only son translated, when they translated that in the Septuagint, the word was monogenes. The rabbis said monogenes. So when uh, John the apostle wrote John 3.16, the Greek word he used for only begotten is monogenes. If there is ever any question that Isaac is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the miracle child through whom this, the promise will come, who becomes a sacrifice at the pleasure of the Father, and the Father must do this. This is the ultimate type of Christ in the Old Testament, in my view. And we have the writer of Hebrews saying in chapter 11, Abraham received him back as a type. Some people don't like typology at all. Others will say only if it's called a type. Here in the story, it's not called a type, but it absolutely, in my opinion, dogmatically must be a picture of our Savior. And the reason I say that is because it's the father sacrificing his son. It's counterintuitive. It's controversial. The the People are talking about this movie they're coming out with, an animated movie that you, you people know Christian culture. You're following the, the, the stuff. There's, a, there's an animated movie coming out about this event of Genesis 22. And the headlines are saying, controversial Bible passage is turned into a crowdfunded movie. Controversial Bible passage. Why is it controversial? Because the father is having to sacrifice his son. And what's the controversy? This was what's required for you to have a relationship with the father is that the father had to sacrifice his son. See, I think that the human sacrifice of the Canaanites is not just gross and egregious in what they're doing in their child sacrifice. I think it's worse. It is gross and egregious because it does nothing. It does nothing for anyone, but it's worse than that because it's a counterfeit of the actual sacrifice of the son. 
which was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan from eternity past. And so it lines up here in portrait form in Genesis 22. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and his split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So notice that, that there is no discussion about the inner thoughts of Abraham. There's no dialogue about, yes, Lord, so be it as you will. Nothing. He just, okay, I'm going to go get offering stuff. Where are you going? I'll tell you later. And, and he's just going to obey because he's trusting in God and he knows who he's dealing with. He knows him and he knows he's trustworthy. So Isaac's going to be the seed that, through whom the blessing comes. Well, well, we'll see how the Lord does this. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And then chapter uh, 22, verse 5. And then he said to his, naro, na, uh, his um, narim, his young men. So he's got attendants that are helping carry the stuff. And he says to the young men, something kind of like what Jesus says at Gethsemane. Y'all stay over here while I, y'all stay here while I go over there kind of thing. So he gives instructions. He says, y'all, um, it's in the second plural, so I have to be literal. Y'all stay here with the donkey, and I and the young man, the other Na'ar, the Ha-Na'ar, the other young man, will go over there, Adko. So y'all stay here. We're going to go over there. And then what he says next is in Genesis. And we might miss it, but it's right here. We will worship and then we will return. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this line and says he expected him back in, in resurrection. The only explanation is if I'm going to go sacrifice him, God said go sacrifice him, that he's going to have to raise him back and we're going to have to come back. And he says we will return. First person plural. And that is fun. Now, in my English Bible, it says, we will worship and return to you. And in that woodenly literal, as they call it, translation in the New American Standards, word for word literal, notice it says, we will, we will worship and return to you, might leave some ambiguity. We will worship, that's what we together will do, and return to you doesn't necessarily mean both of us, because it's not that explicit in English. I mean, I would think of that, I, I would assume that from the English, but in Hebrew, it's very explicit. He says, he says, come in laser beam. He says, you see this shape right here, this sort of thing that's going like that. You see it right here. That's the first person plural marker for an imperfect. It's first plural in both verbs. We will worship and then we will return to you. Now, there are lots of things that happened that you could describe in history. Lots of things with Abraham. You could, the, the conversation with Sarah, we all wonder how that went. Lots of things the text doesn't tell us. Cecil B. DeMille likes to do that. He likes to focus on, he liked to focus on the things the Bible doesn't talk about. Three hours of the Ten Commandments movie or three and a half hours and two of it, two of those hours have nothing to do with what we have in Exodus. We have no idea about all the, um, the Ann Baxter, Yule Brenner stuff. There doesn't, it's not a thing. It's, it's fun. It makes for great Hollywood. It's quite a spectacle, but it's not biblical. 
So that's what, that's what, um, that's what historical fiction does. We try to imagine what, what, what might have happened. That's what the chosen is. There's a lot of fill in that's not, you can't read it in the Bible, but they're trying to say this is how things would have been if you're a tax collector and you're a Jew in the first century. What, what would your life be like? How would you behave? I mean, and that's what, that's what it is. It's historical fiction. So think about all the things about this story we'd like to ask. I'm especially interested in the conversation between Sarah and Abraham, right? <laughs> I suspect he said not much to her. We're headed out, <laughs> you know. Did he really broach the topic with her? The Lord hath said, we will sacrifice the boy. Uh, that is all. And that's all God said to him. That's, and so he leaves her in suspense. I have no idea. But what he does tell us is he says, we will go worship and we will return. And what the writer of Hebrews says, confirming my interpretation here, and I really learned to read it from him, that Abraham is doing this fully expecting that he's coming back. That is the resurrection in the Old Testament. And this is not by implication. This is a direct statement. But boy, is it subtle. We will worship and then we will return to you, plural, to y'all. And you know the story. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on his, Isaac, his son, and he took in his, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together, and Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. <laughs> Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then this, I don't have it in the language here for you, but the next verse is really important too in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide Le for himself. The word for himself could also be himself as the object of provide. Now that's a more controversial interpretation of verse eight than the one I'm showing you in verse five. Verse five is just straightforward. We will, we will. But in verse eight, he says, the Lord will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He'll provide himself the lamb. Now, that means in English, you're going to provide yourself. You're going to provide for yourself. But in Hebrew, it's also ambiguous. It could mean he provide himself, the Lord. And he did. And he would. And that's the gospel. The Lord Jesus did provide himself a sacrifice. And the Father, the Lord Yahweh, God the Father, did provide his son a sacrifice. And that's what this is pointing to. And I say dogmatically. Notice that the pushback from Isaac is done. Abraham puts it on God. God will take care of the need. And there's so much here for our lives. This is walk by faith, not by sight. Do you know God enough to know that he wants better for you than you want for yourself? Do you know God enough to know that when he tells you how it is, that really is how it is, even if it contradicts your feelings, even if it goes against your, uh, your measurements or what your eyes tell you. Do you know God well enough, like Abraham did at this point, to know after the flesh, with my eyes, with my perception, this makes no sense, but God said, and I can read it, with my eyes, in my body, I can read what he said. I know what he wants. How does this apply in your life? 
in the time in which we live. <clears throat> We're told that um, young people of a certain pubescent age with flaring hormones, well, they're just going to do what they're going to do. And after all, their hormones tell them that. It's culturally acceptable. It is now the norm, as we saw the other day on Sunday, the, the fatherlessness rate of childbirth in the children today, the, the people that are being born, it's half. I mean, there's fathers, but they're not present. Wedlock is done. More than half of the kids are being born out of wedlock. But it's what, you know, it's what we do. And it's what our body tells us. And so how can this be wrong? Because we feel it. Just for one example. Now you take that and metastasize that, that arrogance, that my feelings determine what right is, rather than God said, and so I believe it and I trust him and I walk with him. I mentioned my pastor as I started. One of the great blessings of my life was the wisdom he was constantly harping on about one man marrying one woman. That you trust God with that and you give that over to him and you walk with him in your life and you walk with him in who you marry and you make a decision for him about that. And you don't know what you need. You don't know how you're gonna, what your life is going to be like, but you know God, so you ask him. Um, I'm blessed in my marriage. I'm dogmatically blessed in my marriage because my pastor beat us up about this so much. And some will say that there were, there were some things said that weren't in the Bible. <laughs> but the Bible does say one man, one woman. It does say marriage is for life. It does say, therefore, as a young person making that decision, you better be careful how you make it. There's great wisdom. And for example, that act of marriage, you wait till marriage. Let that be a blessing of marriage and not a curse where God's blessing of marriage now is sin and destructive and rebellious against him. My point in all this is think about where your culture is now on sexual liberty. Think about where it is now on, well, I feel like it, so that has to be right. I don't know what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 10, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified. That would imply that people who are given to a certain lifestyle can reform. They can come back to heterosexuality, for example, and God's design of one man, one woman. Well, that can't be true because we know from the popular morality of our culture that that's, that that's abusive and homophobic, right? That can't be true. And, and, that's, and now what do we know? We know that whatever you feel like, I feel like I'm the other sex. Well, that's, that's what you have to be. That's gender-affirming care. And we are, we are uh, fulfilling in our time in a way that I didn't predict 2010 when I started saying the world's a meat grinder. It's trying to eat our kids. I didn't predict, predict that we were going to go full on, I'm not the sex God made me. But that's where we are. And the more children at the youngest possible age, you can get them thinking about, well, maybe I'm not what I am the more it's going to become a, an epidemic. How does this apply? You didn't see that application coming, but understand the principle. God has said, I have my feelings. I have my understanding. It goes against, it seems to go against what God has said. And so there's the question of my faith. Do I believe him? Have I, have, go read it again. Go sacrifice your son. Okay, I've read it again. I still don't like it. But I'm going to trust him because I know who I'm dealing with. And he's able to do what, he's gonna, what, what he wants to do with it, so 
This whole project is his anyway. Matter of fact, I'm his. Everything about me is his. My kids are his. Isaac, the promised seed boy, is his. So we trust him and we step out on faith. As you go forward in the story in Genesis 26.3, God doesn't just say to you and to your children, to Abraham, in chapter 15, chapter 17. In 26.3, he says the same thing to Isaac. God says it to Isaac. He conveys the land promise. He says, to you and to your seed after you. Isaac never received the land. Isaac conveys the land promise to Jacob and says, to you and your children in in Genesis 28.4. But when you get to verse 13 in chapter 28, God appears to Jacob and he says, I'm giving this land to you. And it's the land, the land, the land. And all these people die without receiving the land. And so much of, see, Genesis is setting you up for, for the Exodus event. Moses wrote this. The form we have it in, Moses wrote this. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that Moses didn't use sources that already existed. But Moses wrote the the form of Genesis we have and his purpose apparently for writing as we watch the history of the 1446 Exodus of, of, of the children of Israel from Egypt. Moses did this Genesis prologue to tell these people who they are and what they're all about. Where are we going? See, Exodus 3, you tell them, I am, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Genesis is now going to tell these people about that. And maybe they have their oral tradition. Maybe they're telling the stories in the family hundreds of years later. But the definitive, inspired by the Holy Spirit account of who we are and where we come from and really where are we going, the messianic promise of resurrection in the coming kingdom in the land forever, okay, that is uh, why Moses writes Genesis for this Exodus generation. None of these people receive the land as promised, and they all have to be resurrected. Genesis 35, 12, God restates the land promise again to Jacob. It's all through there. We've said that the Old Testament teaches the resurrection of the dead in two ways. It does it by direct statement, and it does it by implication, and I think we've done uh, enough on implication. Here are some of the direct statements for reference. I, I've, in the notes, I note that usually when there's a direct reference to resurrection, it's not the focus of the passage. It's not the point. 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection is the point. Uh, the last paragraph of 1 Thessalonians 4, the resurrection, the exonostasis, the exit resurrection of the church, that is the point of that passage. But in these passages, usually it's not the point, except perhaps in Ezekiel. We have statements couched in poetry in Isaiah 26, 19, which we've been studying, And then in Psalm 16, and we had the rationale of Peter, and we'll look at Psalm 16 in detail going forward, but the rationale of Peter is that David can't be talking about himself because David died, and his body did undergo decay, so the Holy One who won't undergo decay has to be the Messiah. And what you have to do to read Psalm 16 the way Peter does, now watch this, You have to believe that the Old Testament is all pointing at the Messiah. You have to believe the Psalter is messianic. You have to believe that Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Messiah. You have to believe that more than just Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 7, that that the Old Testament has a messianic thrust. That's why Peter just assumes when when he teaches Psalm 16 on the day of Pentecost. Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones is obviously taken in its plain sense. It's a resurrection of bones and dead bodies to live. 
And to say, well, this just means that the land will be revived, the, the people will be revived or refreshed. I mean, it's possible that God means us to interpret that figure in such an allegory, but it seems unlikely to me as I read it. I don't find that as a satisfying interpretation. In Isaiah 25.8, you have a direct statement of the resurrection. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's not really that explicit. It's not really that prominent. But how is he going to swallow up death? That's, that's some sort of lyric poetic language. Well, the idea is that death is conquered. Death is devoured. So the thing that would have to happen is I would come to life because he devours death. As we close, um, see if I can find my, my slide that I wanted to read at you. There it is. Daniel chapter 12. Many, Rav, many of those who sleep, the sleepers, of, of those who uh, sleep uh, in the Adama, in the dust of earth, the dust of the earth, um, will rise, will wake up and rise, get up in the morning. Is the way this word is translated. It means to get up from being asleep. Many who sleep in the dust will wake up and arise. These, Ela, these, Lechai, to life. Olam, forever, life eternal. And these, it's like he's saying these over here and these over here. These to life eternal. And these to uh, herpa, disgrace, uh, for a duration that is uh, uh, for disgrace for abhorrence eternal. That's the literal. Um, and you clean it up if you read your English Bible in Daniel 12 too. But th- there's, a li- there's a resurrection to life and death as the picture. There's a resurrection to, to blessing and a resurrection to cursing. And, and just taking the one verse out of context. To think that this could mean something other than a resurrection. So that, well, the only verse is Isaiah 26, 19. I don't think that that could possibly be the case unless you don't believe in Daniel, which is likely the case in a lot of these instances. Last thing I want to show you tonight is, um, is kind of a bonus. We've looked at it before, but I, lo- I want to leave this thought in your, in your ears as we break tonight. If you go to Isaiah, slip forward to Isaiah 9. I am what you call a premillennialist. I believe that the Lord Jesus will come back pre, before he establishes his kingdom. A postmillennialist believes that we, the, the church, will establish the kingdom, and then Jesus, the you know the 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 general contractor, will come and say, "I approve of the work that you've done." It's it's super optimistic, and um, it's kind of on a resurgence. It went away after World War One, but um. Postmillennialists are 
we're going to bring the kingdom and social gospel is the method. And um, there's a lot of time wasting going on in that effort because you're not going to bring the kingdom. There's a tribulation that's inevitable and then the world is going to unite against God and worship Antichrist as the Messiah. That's what's going to happen. And you're not going to bring the kingdom until Jesus comes and puts that all down. And then he establishes his kingdom. That's, that's the timeline for world events going forward. And we are on beforehand of that stuff happening. It's headed down. A cl- we're going down the falls soon. I don't know when. But it's not, we're not going to flip up and it's all solved. Until you go through that tribulation time and the world has to deal with that and then Christ delivers his people. And um, I say you go through, I mean the world has to face the tribulation that's coming, the time of Jacob's trouble. But as a premillennialist, I believe in what's called the millennium. I believe in Revelation chapter 20 when it says a thousand years, I go ahead and just believe it's a thousand years. When it says that there are 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel, so 12,000 from each tribe, I believe that somehow there are going to be 12,000 witnesses in this evangelism explosion during the tribulation that it's Israel, the tribes of Israel evangelizing the world and telling them about their Messiah. So I believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ as described in Rev 12 and then the unleashing of Satan after a thousand years, and then another rebellion that he leads of the mortals on earth against Christ that is finally put down with not much effort, and then the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of Satan, the fallen angels, and death and Hades are all thrown into the lake of fire. The separation of of God's righteousness from the wickedness of sin is finally complete, and then the new heavens and new earth. I, I believe that's the future. And some will say, yeah, the reign of Jesus in the land is only a thousand years. You're, you're a premillennialist. But I can't do it. It can't be just a thousand years for the reign of Christ. It has to be that the first thousand years are this time after Jacob's trouble. The Revelation 20,000 years, it has to be that it's the first thousand years of the kingdom. And I'll, tell you, I'll show you why. In Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah says, for a child will be born to us, A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. The government will rest on his shoulders. Okay, that sounds like kingdom language to me, the government. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and that means military strategist. That's a general's appellation. Wonderful Counselor does not mean he pats your hand and says, how does that make you feel? It means that he is the guy that you bring in for counsel on how to, to conduct the attack or the defense. That's, that's the idea of counsel there. Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 is the part that makes me say, if I take Isaiah seriously, I can't say that Jesus reigns in the land from Zion for just a thousand years. Yes, the new heavens and new earth come with the new Jerusalem, but it's still this kingdom of Christ over the nations. Because Isaiah 9, 7 says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, which in 2 Samuel 7, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Chronicles sorry, 17, Psalm 89 is a forever throne. Throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness with justice and righteousness, and then this language is, it's hard to get around it, from then on and forevermore. 
If that forevermore means a thousand years, I got a problem with forever promises of God. The eternal one has made eternal promises. This is one of them. From then on forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of the armies will accomplish this. The kingdom of our Savior begins with a very bizarre period of the millennium where you have mortals living in the same structure with with resurrected immortal church-age believers. Mortals that survive the tribulation, the remnant of Israel and the, the Gentiles that believe will come in to the, to the kingdom. They'll, they'll have a perfect environment because Jesus will be ruling and there will be a massive population explosion. And Satan gets released after a thousand years and then he leads this rebellion and then Jesus puts it down very quickly. That's the sequence. That's what's coming. But that thousand year reign of Christ is just the first thousand years of the coming kingdom. And so you're like John the Baptist. You're saying it's coming. We're recruiting for those who, like us, will rule with Jesus Christ and his kingdom as the bride. Our Father, we thank you for the awesome truths of eschatology that challenge us to think about what you promised. And uh, Father, we thank you that these things are not fantasy, but they do take us out of the mundane drudgery of this, this life and the, the hardships that we face and the limitations that we're suffering. Father, every one of us is in a different place in these limitations, but we're unlimited in our joy and our hope as we pay attention to what you promised, all because of who Jesus is and what you're going to do with him. Father, it's my prayer for every one of us that we'd fix our hope completely on the glory that is to be revealed to us in your Son, that we would, whatever our circumstances, be so stabilized by these promises, by these truths, as we mix, mix what you said with our faith and we trust you, we'd be stabilized and we'd be able to rejoice steadily through the challenges of this life. For Father, glorify yourself at Preston City Bible Church and indeed among all the saints as you provide opportunities for us to represent Jesus Christ as those who belong to this coming kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.